the observant traveler, who makes his way along the southern coast of Maine near York Beach, notices far off the shore a lighthouse rising high into the sky. This tall, slender beacon seems to come sheer out of the ocean, but a keen eye can clearly see a narrow ledge at the base. On this ledge, which the surf submerges in the severe winter storms, one of the most harrowing tragedies of New England maritime history was located more than 200 years ago. On the 25th of September, 1710, Captain John Dean sailed from London on his ship, the Nottingham Galley. After loading stores in Ireland, he began the long journey to America. Prevailing weather so hindered his progress that for over 80 days he did not sight land. Then thick weather shut in. Another two weeks went by before the ship reached a point near Boone Island, where the lighthouse stands today. Without warning, the Nottingham Galley crashed against the ragged ledges and quickly went to pieces. Although the night was dark, all the crew landed safely. When morning came, they saw that they were far from the mainland. In spite of their unhappy situation, Captain Dean tells us in his original narrative, which he recommends to the serious perusal of all, but especially seafaring men, that they were joyful to be alive and thanked Providence for their deliverance. Several miles to the southeast, they could see vessels entering and leaving Portsmouth Harbor, but there was no response to the shipwrecked men's frantic signals. A tent made from a torn remnant of the sail was their only shelter. Through it, the bitter winds of late December whistled and blew, swirling the snow across the icy ledges. Fire, they had none, nor were they able to kindle one in all the time they were forced to spend on the ledge. Food was scarce, three cheeses and some beef bones that had washed ashore, and this little supply was soon gone. The mariners made plans to leave the desolate rock, since the only chance of being rescued was a slight possibility of a sailing vessel's coming within hailing distance. So the hungry men built a crude boat, only to have the pounding surf break it before it had hardly been launched. A short time later, three sailing vessels passed the island on their way down the coast, but there was no response to the sailors' frantic attempts to attract attention. In spite of the handicap of frostbitten feet, a Swedish sailor directed the building of a small raft. On it, they stepped a mast and hoisted a sail made of two canvas hammocks. The Swede and another sailor launched the craft into the breakers, which immediately overturned the raft. The two sailors barely escaped with their lives. Again, the determined Scandinavian set out, this time with another sailor, the first man having been weakened by immersion. Off toward the mainland, the raft floated, with the two men waving their farewells to the hopeful crew. But misfortune struck. For later in the week, the body of the sailor was found frozen on the mainland. The Swede was never seen again. Let Captain Dean continue the story. About the latter end of December, the carpenter, a fat man, naturally of a dull, heavy, phlegmatic constitution, 
and aged about 47, always very ill from his first coming on shore. Soon grew speechless, though retaining his senses. Dying that night, his body remained in the tent till morning, when the master, as usual, going out in quest of provisions, ordered the people to remove the corpse to some distance. The marooned men's hunger became intense. Starving, they discussed means of preserving their existence. Inevitably, the body of the dead carpenter engaged their attention. At last, a vote was taken, and a majority was for eating the dead body. Did the captain tell the truth when he wrote that he, at first, would have no part in it? and only yielded when he found himself overruled. In any event, the carpenter's remains were at once cut up. A few thin slices, washed in salt water, were brought into the tent and given to everyone, with a good quantity of rockweed to supply the place of bread. The first piece the master ate was part of the gristles that composed the breast, having the flesh scraped clean off, for his stomach, as yet, abominated the loathsome diet. Though his importunate appetite had, more than once, led him to survey with a longing eye the extremities of his forefingers. The mate and two other opposers refused to partake of the flesh that night, but were the first next morning to beg an equal share in the common allowance. But better times were in store for the men at Boone Island. The unfortunate men who had braved the seas on the raft had not died in vain, for they were the means of the eventual rescue of their comrades at Boone Island. Some men from Portsmouth, their curiosity excited by the finding of the dead sailor and the raft on shore, sailed in a shallop to explore the rocks of Boone Island. When they arrived, they found the survivors and took them to the mainland. So runs the captain's story. But although the account of Captain Dean has seldom been challenged by modern writers, there exists another version of the tale. Written by the mate, the bosun, and one of the crew... The book was printed in London in 1711, and differs in many respects from the captain's narrative. The authors charge that early in the voyage, Captain Dean beat several of the crew so severely as to cripple them. From then on, matters went from bad to worse. The captain had intended to betray the vessel to the French, but never could get close enough to a French ship to give himself up. When Cape Sable was sighted, the captain seemed purposely to delay the voyage. Noting the proximity of land, the mate appealed to the captain to haul off, whereupon the captain answered that he would not take his advice, though the ship should go to the bottom, threatened to shoot the mate with a pistol. That night, the 11th of December, 1710, the Nottingham galley struck on Boone Island. The wreck declared the captain's accusers, was deliberately planned in order to get the ship's high insurance money. Other items in the captain's account were challenged by his subordinates, but regardless of motives, the two narratives agree in 
the essential facts. Welcome to a Patreon bonus episode of Beyond the Breakers, the first in our Dead Reckoning series. This monthly bonus series will be an outlet for us to focus on some of the more ghastly, gruesome, and otherworldly elements of shipwreck lore. The story you've just heard is titled Cannibalism in Maine, and I came across this tale in a book called Storms and Shipwrecks of New England by Edward Rowe Snow. Snow was a prolific writer, with over a hundred publications credited to him. He was born in 1902 in Massachusetts, and he was working as a high school teacher when World War II broke out. During the war, he served in the 12th Bomber Command and was wounded in North Africa in 1942, being discharged the following year. In 1957, Snow began working as a columnist for the Patriot Ledger, a position he would hold until his death in 1982. As a lifelong New Englander, Snow had an interest in maritime history and lore that is heavily reflected in his writing. He published more than 40 books, most of which are on subjects such as pirates, shipwrecks, storms, lighthouses, and mysterious happenings at sea. Not only in print, but on the radio. He hosted a show called Six Bells from the 40s into the early 50s. The show was aimed at a young audience, sharing pirate stories from up and down the eastern seaboard. Snow's also fondly remembered for his role as Flying Santa. From a small plane, Snow would drop Christmas presents to lighthouse keepers and their families. He did this for more than 40 years, well into his 70s. Edward Rowe Snow never slowed down with putting out new material. He published more or less a book per year from 1941 to 1981. His final book was Pirates, Shipwrecks, and Historical Chronicles. And some of his older work has been republished within the last few decades. Now that we know a little about the author, let's get into the subject of the story. The Nottingham Galley, her wreck on Boone Island, and the tale of cannibalism that made this particular shipwreck so infamous in its day. The central character in the drama is Captain John Dean, whose memoir became the most widely accepted version of the story. As was referenced in the reading, another version of the story was published by other members of the crew, differing in a few noteworthy details. But the appeal of this story was in the public's morbid fascination with the egregious societal taboo of cannibalism. As cited in an article by R.H. Warner in the New England Quarterly, We were now reduced to the most deplorable and melancholy circumstances imaginable. No fire, and the weather extreme cold, our small stock of cheese spent, and nothing to support our feeble bodies, with the prospect of starving without any appearance of relief. After discussing the, quote, lawfulness and sinfulness of their situation, the captain writes that 
we were obliged to submit to the more prevailing arguments of our craving appetites. Captain Dean clearly struggled with the decision, and even more so with the undertaking itself. Care was taken to dress the body of the carpenter who had died, quote, disposing of those parts which distinguished it as human, and renaming the rest Beef. That same lamentable lack of fire that kept the men from getting warm also deprived the men of even that small mercy of cooking the flesh before attempting its consumption. It was eaten raw. At the time of the carpenter's death, there were 14 men left alive. However, the carpenter wasn't the first man to die as they clung to the frozen scrap of rock that is Boone Island. The ship's cook had died within the first few days of being stranded. He was buried at sea. One has to wonder if they would have kept the cook around if they knew that they would ultimately be stuck for over three weeks. Days after the crew crossed the moral Rubicon of consuming their own shipmate, they were rescued. As detailed in Snow's telling of the story, two men had tried unsuccessfully to escape on a raft. One of these men's bodies was found on shore, prompting a search of the island and the ultimate recovery of the remaining crew. But while accounts more or less agree on what happened after the crew was cast upon the rocks... There are different details about what led up to the wreck. Quoting from Warner again in New England Quarterly. Before returning to England, the mate, Christopher Langman, made deposition before a justice of the peace in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, arguing that this deponent believeth that the said John Dean, according to his working of the said ship in the said voyage, designed to lose her. He was seconded by the testimony of the boatswain, Nicholas Mellon, and a seaman, George White. Both claimed that Dean had left the security of a naval convoy on the cruise from London to Ireland with the intent of turning his ship over to privateers so that the owners might collect insurance money. They argued that the captain was prevented by Christopher Langman, by whose assistance the said ship arrived at her port. They also claimed that Dean endeavored to hand the ship over a second time during the Atlantic Passage, that he physically assaulted Langman on the night of the disaster while attempting intentionally to wreck the ship, and that the mate was responsible for getting the crew safely from the sinking ship to Boone Island. Despite how quickly Langman was able to make his accusations against John Dean, the captain had connections not available to the men under his command. John's older brother, Jasper, was the owner of the vessel itself and co-owner of the cargo, along with Charles Whitworth. Jasper rushed his brother's account to the press, writing an introduction in which his stated goal is to preempt, quote, the design of others to publish the account without us. Jasper hoped to counteract what he referred to as barbarous and scandalous reflection 
industriously spread abroad and leveled at our ruin by some unworthy, malicious persons. Jasper Dean argued that the Nottingham Galley, rather than being an attractive ship to lose for insurance purposes, was in fact underinsured, and that, in any case, December on the New England coast would not be the time or place to feign distress for fraudulent purposes. One would wonder if malice itself could invent or suggest anything so ridiculous, he commented on these accusations. After Dean's account was published, Langman followed up on his original deposition by publishing his own account of the narrative in collaboration with the ship's bosun, Nicholas Mellon, and George White. This work, titled True Account of the Voyage of the Nottingham Galley, accused the captain of attempting to turn the ship over to the French, in addition to charging him with barbaric cruelty towards the crew and implying his poor quality as a sailor. A third account appeared in print, called A Sad and Deplorable but True Account. This was a shortening, summarizing, and sensationalizing of the previous two. This version appears to be unauthorized and drifts between first and third person narrative. The presence of cannibalism, both real and hypothetical, is emphasized in this version, saying, Having no food, they were fain to feed upon the dead bodies, which, being all consumed, they were going to cast lots which should be the next devoured. The dismal prospect of future want obliged the captain to keep a strict watch over the rest of the body, lest any of them should get to it, and then being spent, we would be forced to feed upon the living, which we must certainly have done had we stayed a few days longer. You can see here how exaggeration has crept into an already gruesome story. We have reference to multiple bodies being consumed. We have the implication that crew members would have been killed for food, rather than the more opportunistic cannibalism that actually happened. And we have the indication that the crew are actively wanting to get to these bodies to eat more, rather than choking down the bare minimum that they felt necessary for survival. Although he received notoriety for his account of the Nottingham Galley, this didn't translate into professional success for John Dean. One has to think it's challenging to overcome a reputation as a captain who wrecked his ship, lost all of his cargo, and ate a member of his crew. With obstacles in his way in the service of his native country, Dean looked abroad. Not to France, but to Russia. His first command, the brand new 50-gun man-of-war Yagodil, had struggles of her own under Dean's command. Struggles that would have felt eerily like deja vu to the captain. On a voyage from Archangel to the Baltic Sea, dangerously late in the sailing season, half of Yagodil's crew had been lost by the time the vessel put in at Trondheim in Norway. Notably, not on the Baltic, and just over halfway through the scheduled voyage. 
Dean was reassigned to a smaller ship, the 32-gun frigate Samson, based in the Estonian port of Rival, modern-day Tallinn, which we discussed in the episode on the Russian monitor Rusalka. Dean's reputation saw an upswing in this role. He became known as a successful raider, who captured over 20 enemy ships over the course of several years. However, with Dean, it always seems that interpersonal conflict undermined any potential success. The cutthroat nature of the Russian officer corps and disputes with junior Russian officers led to him being demoted and exiled to Kazan on the Volga. Not exactly the place that an aspiring naval commander hopes to be stationed. When Tsar Peter I, otherwise known as Peter the Great, granted a general amnesty to disgraced officers, Dean was expelled, along with numerous other foreigners in service of Russia, and left the country in 1722. Back in England, Dean attempted to rebuild his career once again, taking advantage of the one currency he had quite a bit of, knowledge of the Russian Navy. He published a detailed account called A History of the Russian Fleet During the Reign of Peter the Great. He billed himself as the preeminent expert on Russian affairs, naval and otherwise. It's interesting to see this happening in history. In modern times, we see this in the form of any retired military officer who wants to, being able to land a pretty cushy gig doing talking head appearances on cable news. While reinventing himself as a foreign policy expert, Dean didn't forget where he came from. He republished his account of the Nottingham Galley, noticeably removing the introduction and conclusion written by his brother Jasper. Dean would later return to Russia, though this time in a role as commercial consul for Britain in St. Petersburg. He was, however, expelled once again after just over two weeks. The Russian state was apparently aware of the reality that Dean was in St. Petersburg only secondarily as a consul and primarily as a spy, something that he actually ended up being quite good at. While in St. Petersburg, Dean was able to establish contact with a young Irish officer named Edmund O'Connor. O'Connor was a courier in service of the shadowy menace hovering incessantly over the House of Hanover, always angling to unseat these German interlopers. This was, of course, the Jacobites, and their long-running attempts to restore the House of Stuart to the throne of Great Britain. Being tempted by a significant monetary reward and the offer of a royal pardon, O'Connor betrayed the Jacobite cause, allowing Dean and British intelligence agents to infiltrate high-level Jacobite networks. During tensions between Britain and Russia in the Baltic, Dean remained useful in gathering intelligence on the Russian fleet, publishing the present state of the Danes, Swedes, and Russians in respect to one another and to the English fleet in the Baltic in the year 1726. Dean re-released his narrative of the Nottingham Galley once again in 1726, 
reworking it into a third-person narrative rather than the memoir format it had originally been composed in. He continued serving in the Foreign Office until retiring in 1738. John Dean died in 1761 at the healthy old age of 83 at his home in Wilford. After his death, Miles Whitworth, whose father had been Charles Whitworth of the Nottingham Galley, republished the original Dean account as it was written in 1711. Dean had attempted to suppress this original version and supplant it with his subsequent new editions. In conclusion, John Dean lived a life that was exciting by any definition of the word. He served as a sea raider, capturing enemy ships for the Tsar. He was a diplomat, on the surface at least, though his true talents came out in the world of international espionage and intelligence gathering. But it seems that no matter what else Dean accomplished in life, he would always be inextricably bound to what he and his crew experienced in the rocky, frozen hell of Boone Island, just off the coast of Maine.